ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's January the 26th, Friday. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. Our bronzed Aussie culture and getting a tan is killing us. That's the message from the joint winners of the Australian of the Year, Professor Georgina Long and Richard Scolia, who have pioneered a new way of treating melanoma with immunotherapy, an approach credited with saving thousands of lives. But their battle is now personal. Professor Long is trying to adapt their cancer-fighting approach to save Professor Scolia, who last year was diagnosed with incurable brain cancer. They weren't the only Australians celebrated at last night's awards in Canberra. With more, here's Monty Boval. Celebrating extraordinary Australians from every corner of the country. The 2024 Australian of the Year, I'm proud to announce, is Professor Georgina Long and Professor Richard Scolia. Less than a decade ago, advanced melanoma was fatal. But thanks to a new approach from the two pioneering professors from Sydney, it has become a curable disease. They've saved thousands of lives. More courage is needed to push treatment boundaries backed by science for the benefit of all cancer patients. Despite progress being made, melanoma still kills hundreds of Australians every year. And Professors Long and Scolia have one clear message. There is nothing healthy about a tan. Nothing. Our bronzed Aussie culture is actually killing us. So we call on advertisers and social media influencers. Stop glamorising tanning. Now, Professor Scolia has found himself in a cancer fight of his own, last year being diagnosed with incurable grade four brain cancer. He's the self-described patient zero in a new experimental approach to the terminal illness. I'm only 57. I don't want to die. I love my life my family, my work. We do not let fear hold us back. Be bold, be courageous, and we must work together. Yeah. 29-year-old Emma McKeon has stood on an Olympic podium more times than any other Australian. She's broken Commonwealth, Olympic and world records and now holds the title of Young Australian of the Year. I've been swimming for as long as I can remember and I grew up being inspired by incredible athletes which put a fire in my belly to go after my dreams and do something great with the power of determination and hard work. So going from that young girl to today, it is still crazy to me that I've done what I have in sport and I want young kids to know that I was once in the same position that, that they are now, hoping and dreaming of one day of doing something big. She's not the only Queenslander who received an award. David Elliott, a pastoralist whose chance discovery of a dinosaur fossil has seen him dedicate his life to sharing the country's dinosaur history, was named Australia's local hero. He's determined to build a world-class natural history museum. Building the museum has been my abiding passion for over 20 years, but it hasn't always been an easy path to follow. There's been some bumpy sections, sometimes there's been no path at all. But I've learned one thing. When you are overwhelmed, you have to believe in yourself. And you have to look back on your achievements and be inspired. 
you can make a difference, it just takes time. Yalme Yunipingu was recognised for her contribution to bilingual education in northeast Arnhem Land, being named Senior Australian of the Year. After working as a teacher for more than four decades, she's now retired and wants to draw attention to poor health outcomes among Indigenous Australians, saying more needs to be done. Uh, people are sick and dying, young and old. Unfortunately, Western medicine is not working on its own. We need to marry both worlds of healing. My message is very clear. Yolngu bush medicine and healing is vital for Yolngu. We can't do this on our own. We need your help to work together. Senior Australian of the Year, Yalme Yunapingu, ending that report from Monty Boval. For just the second time since Australia Day Honours System started in 1975, more women than men have been recognised. And four years after the COVID pandemic began, dozens of people are being acknowledged for their work in responding to the public health crisis. Gavin Coote reports. When Australians were called on to get vaccinated at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, Professor Julie Leesk was at the forefront, playing a key role in educating people and making them comfortable with getting the jab. She's now being appointed an officer of the Order of Australia. I'm very interested in not just describing the problems with why people are unable to vaccinate or don't want to vaccinate, but also looking at solutions. As a former nurse, I think I'm quite a practical academic. There's so many dividing lines in our lives today. Finding ways to talk across those dividing lines is so important for how we function as a society today. Former Victorian Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton is also among the nearly 50 Australians being recognised for their role during the pandemic. There's a total of 739 people on the Australia Day Honours list, more than half of them women, and of the four people being appointed the top gong, the companion of the Order of Australia, two are leaders in tertiary education. University of Queensland Vice-Chancellor Deborah Terry and businesswoman and University of Technology Sydney Chancellor Catherine Livingston. There are two former Tasmanian premiers being appointed an officer of the Order of Australia, or AO, Robin Gray, who led the state through much of the 1980s, and Lara Giddings for her distinguished service to the people and Parliament of Tasmania. Some of my fondest memories are actually being just a member of Parliament and being in the community and being with my constituents to achieve the dreams that they wanted to achieve or to help them when they were in need of help because they didn't have a house or they were facing a health issue that they needed assistance with. So they're the things that I reflect on with great warmth. Among the media personalities receiving a gong are former Sunrise host David Kosh, Channel 10's Sandra Sully and ABC Queensland weather presenter Jenny Woodward. Majida Abud Saab, who was a founding member of the SBS's Arabic Language Service, says she's delighted to receive a Medal of the Order of Australia, or OAM. But multicultural and multilingual work is recognised and validated as important to the country, that it's valued within the honours system. Plastic surgeon Professor Fiona Wood, a former Australian of the Year who invented spray-on skin for burn patients, is being appointed an AO, as is Graeme Webb, one of the world's leading experts on crocodile conservation. He counts working with traditional owners on croc preservation efforts in Arnhem Land among his career highlights. It's a whole community thing. It's linked in with, you know, attendance at schools and feral animals. You know, that is a great thing. 
and it taught me so much. Beloved Catholic priest and social justice campaigner, the late Father Bob Maguire, is being posthumously appointed an AO. He died in April, but his legacy lives on with the Father Bob Foundation, which runs food relief and other services. Frank O'Connor is its director. Well, Bob had a special way with people, which is uh, evidence in the way in which uh, this facility here at Bob's, Father Bob's Pantry operates, that uh, anybody who comes here is accepted for who they are, no questions asked, and uh, that sense of uh, engaging with people was always a hallmark of Father Bob's work. That's Frank O'Connor from the Father Bob Maguire Foundation, Gavin Coote with that report, and congratulations to all recipients. North Queenslanders have endured a night of gale-force winds and heavy rain after cycling Kiralee across the coast as a Category 2 system. Early assessments of the damage in Townsville suggest the city's been spared the worst, but power lines and trees are down. About 50,000 properties are without power across North Queensland. But the Weather Bureau says Kiralee could have a sting in its tail, warning of flash flooding, intense rainfall and damaging winds. Rachel Mealy reports. Palm Island sits just off the Queensland coast north of Townsville. Last night, it was directly in Kiralee's path. Daylight is allowing first assessments of damage. Michael Bizzle is the chief executive of the Palm Island Aboriginal Shire Council and the local disaster coordinator. I'm out and about driving the streets at the moment. We seem to have fared very well. We have one report of a family needing to leave a house due to water inundation. Um, I'm observing several trees down, um, no major reports of property damage or injury to life thus far. What about power? Power is on, water is on, uh, sewer is on. Um, all major uh, services, telecommunications are all okay. As the system crossed over Palm Island, can you describe what that was like? It was fairly typical of a, a, a Cat 3 cyclone, some fairly uh, strong winds. You know, there's always strange sounds outside. Um, I have a, uh, a very large pawpaw tree in my yard that fell over during the evening and uh, banged against the house. So, you know, it was very dark, very wet, very windy. We had wind gusts on island of over 120 kilometres per hour. So, you know, people hunker down inside and uh, hope for the best. So it's a very, it's always an eerie experience. You're never quite certain what is going on outside and uh, it's really scary. ABC journalist Christy Sexton McGrath spent the night in a high-rise hotel on Townsville's foreshore. Uh, there was a PA announcement that came out at around seven o'clock last night telling us that we were not to leave our rooms and that all doors were locked. Uh, at around eight o'clock last night, that's when the winds really started to pick up. You know, the, my window was shaking and at one stage it was almost like it, it felt like or, or it sounded like there was a, there was a plane flying overhead. It was that that roar. Uh, anyway, look, uh, we've come out. It's very, very early, early, very, very early in the morning here in Townsville. We're in the CBD. Uh, we've had a quick look up and down the street. We can't see any major, uh, any major structural damage. There are a few trees down and leaves down. Queensland Fire and Emergency Services Acting Commissioner Stephen Smith says he's breathing a sigh of relief. Really positive reports overnight. Um, very fortunately, 
Our Swiftwater crews haven't had to perform any rescues overnight. Uh, and requests for assistance have been um, remarkably low, just over 170. So, you know, that's all the planning and preparation of our community. So we're really grateful for that. The Weather Bureau's senior forecaster, Miriam Bradbury, says Kiralee wasn't as fierce as she could have been. It actually slipped down to a Category 2 system just before it crossed the coast. And it was more of a wind event than a rain event. So the rainfall totals we saw around Townsville only really reached 50 to 70 millimetres as this cyclone came through. But there was plenty of wind damage seen across... Uh, that stretch of coast. Bureau of Meteorology Senior Forecaster Miriam Bradbury ending Rachel Mealy's report. The International Court of Justice in The Hague is set to hand down its ruling later tonight, our time, on South Africa's claim that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. In Israel, some of the families of hostages taken by Hamas and still in Gaza becoming increasingly strident in their demands that the Israeli government do more to secure the release of those kidnapped. The ABC's Global Affairs editor, John Lyons, is in Jerusalem. John, tell us about the anticipation in Jerusalem about this International Court of Justice ruling. Well, Sabra, tonight, Australian time, the ICJ in The Hague, the 17 judges will hand down their decision. It can be a majority decision of the 17. Um, the Israelis are extremely nervous about it. They believe that it would be, you know, um, a damage to their reputation should there be a prima facie finding of genocide, which South Africa, of course, has alleged in this claim. Now, both South Africa and Israel are signatories to the Genocide Convention of 1948, and so it is binding. However, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, has said if there is a finding of genocide or prima facie finding, they will not uh, adhere to that. They will not uh, bring in a ceasefire on the basis that it would be unfair for one side of a conflict to put down their weapons, that is Israel, while the other side, Hamas, does not. Now, to the hostages still being held in Gaza, how much of a problem is this for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? There's been a dramatic increase in the activity of the families of those hostages over the last 24 hours. They are becoming desperate now. It's been 110 days or so since those 240 hostages were taken. There's still 100 left inside Gaza. And the families believe if they don't get them out soon that some of them will die. In fact, some already have died, but they believe more will die. So they're now resorting to much more dramatic tactics. Here in Jerusalem, over the last day, They've been uh, disrupting traffic. They've been standing in front of cars to try to get the message out. They've actually tried to storm the Knesset to get in there. They've tried to get into various committees within the Knesset and uh, the actual main chamber itself. And their view is that unless those hostages come out soon, then their lives are seriously in peril. Now, I know this is a difficult question, but how long do you expect that the war will last? There are certainly signs at the moment that all the different parties want an end to the war. We obviously don't know for sure, but the United States is definitely wanting this war to end sooner rather than later. Hamas clearly wants it to end because they're rejecting a two-month ceasefire on the basis it must be permanent. And the Israeli public is starting to say, what exactly are we achieving there? 24 Israeli soldiers were killed earlier this week. That's the biggest loss of Israeli soldiers for some time. And the public is now starting to say, we haven't cut the head off the Hamas snake as they see it. We have not decapitated the Hamas leadership. 
So what are we actually achieving in there? We're losing a lot of soldiers, and but we're not actually getting our aim of demolishing Hamas as a military machine. So the public here in Israel is starting to say we need to know what comes next. The ABC's Global Affairs Editor, John Lyons. The West Australian government's examining possible changes to mining royalties as nickel and lithium operators being hit hard by big drop in global prices. The plummet's already led to job losses with fears more could follow. The nickel and lithium industries are considered vital to Australia's energy transition. But how far should the government go in providing a helping hand? Isabel Masali reports. If you ask Professor Alan Trench about the lithium and nickel markets right now, you'll get a pretty bleak answer. Well, we start with lithium. It's pretty tough right now. The prices have fallen 80%, perhaps even a bit more, in the space of the last 12 months. In nickel, the extreme's not quite so extreme. It's probably the prices a bit more than halved. Professor Trench is a mineral economist at the University of Western Australia. He explains global demand for both is quite strong, Nickel is used in stainless steel and, to a lesser extent, batteries, while lithium is a crucial part of battery technology, including for electric vehicles. So why are prices dropping? The big mover here has been on the supply side. In lithium, it's actually come from Australia itself. The great build-out of lithium production in West Australia, such that we've reached just tipping over 50% of global production of lithium, has been a great success story. But as I say, all that new supply has actually filled up the inventories through the supply chain and means that, you know, prices have dropped for a a period. In the nickel side, it's not been Australia, but it's actually been Indonesia that's actually ramped up supply enormously quickly. A turnaround is expected, but he cautions that may be a year or two away. In recent weeks, a number of projects have run into trouble, including Andrew Forrest's nickel operation Wailu Metals in WA's goldfields, which could affect more than 250 workers. A meeting in Perth late yesterday between producers and ministers from the state and federal governments tried to tackle the issue of how the nickel and lithium industries will get through the downturn. Tony Wood from the Grattan Institute warns it can be dangerous for government to get involved, but sometimes there's an argument for action to be taken. A, because lithium and nickel are both going to be important to Australia broadly in the longer term and to the world. B, because they are important for climate change. And C, because there is some argument Uh, at least compared to some countries, Australia's production might be more sustainable, more environmentally clean. After yesterday's meeting, Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King indicated one potential measure is a production tax credit. That idea is being pushed by the Association of Mining and Exploration Companies. The idea of production tax credits um, or production credits of some sort has been around for a while. In the United States, uses it as a way of, has used it for many years as a way of supporting renewable energy. And so the idea is that you're given some form of either tax relief or production credits, whether they're tax credits or not, it's just another term. Um, There's different ways of doing it. Professor Nigel Cook from the University of Adelaide sees the current situation as a hiccup. He's hesitant about government rushing to the industry's side, but he backs production tax credits. The problem is for the smaller producers. You don't want to mine the close because to, to get it going again, that can be a difficult and expensive procedure. Adelaide University's Professor Nigel Cook ending Isabel Masali's report. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.